Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series, Innovations in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias, or ADRD, Caregiver Support Programs, Innovative Community Strategies. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on December 14, 2022. In this podcast, Nikki Rosellis, a consultant at the Lewin Group, facilitates a panel discussion with Karen M. Rose, the Vice Dean, the Director, and a Professor of the Center for Healthy Aging, Self-Management, and Complex Care at The Ohio State University College of Nursing, Katie Scott, the President of Care Partners, and Joe Smith, a caregiver. During this discussion, panelists offer strategies and promising practices regarding innovations in Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, or ADRD, caregiver support programs regarding innovative community strategies. We will now move into our panel discussion. So the first question is for all panelists. So Dr. Rose, Katie, and Joe, starting first with Dr. Rose, what top two or three recommendations do you have for unpaid caregivers who are struggling to navigate the complexities of Medicare and Medicaid coverage and other social programs, for example, SNAP, Social Security, and guardianship? That's a great question. Thank you. I think I'd first say for family caregivers to take good notes. Our memories don't serve us well. They're dealing with so many things. So taking, jotting down notes of what you, who you spoke to and what they said, and I think helps. If there's one spokesperson, you know, oftentimes family members, many are involved, but if there's really one spokesperson who's taking charge, that could be helpful as well. I'd say, too, to family caregivers, give yourself grace. You're doing incredibly important work, and there will be times that maybe you drop a ball or two, but I'd say pick them back up, know who your support systems are, and where you can obtain accurate information. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Katie, would you like to provide your perspective next? Yes, I would simply tell family caregivers, ask for help. You do not have to go it alone, and there are resources available in the community. There are free resources. There are many communities that offer caregiver consultation to local area agencies on aging and other nonprofits. There are also other resources that offer it for a fee. And so they don't have to do it alone and find the people in your community that are the best and trusted resources. Excellent. Thank you, Katie. And Joe, could you please share your thoughts to this question? Well, when I first, we were first diagnosed, even before that, I had taken care of my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law and gotten them through the Medicaid process. And so I had to educate myself on Medicaid, driven by income. I did internet research on limitations for, and gathered appropriate paperwork. Example, bank records, salary limits, EOB different things that are required for the Medicaid process. And then in doing that, you have to find the proper insurance, the right insurance that fits them. So during the advisory group, I reached out for help on on comparing insurance programs, like Medicare Advantage plans, if you will, and you compare four or five of them and see which one best suits your needs 
You also have to make sure that your doctors are in the plan that you choose and that medications are in there as well because not all insurances pay for, you know, the same doctors and or medication. And then, you know, just mainly educate yourself, learn all you can do. Like in our case, Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's feed off of each other. In doing that, they affect hearing and eyes and all different kinds of things. So I'm a big advocate of, of learning all that I can in order to drive what I need to do. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. And for your recommendation regarding finding the best coverage for you, folks may also be able to leverage their state health insurance assistance program, or SHIP, which aims to support Medicare-eligible individuals when making benefits or care decisions. So this next question is for Dr. Karen Rose. For caregiver support programs that would like to offer and implement technology for the people they serve, what are next steps? Sure. So I mean, that's a, that can be challenging. I think that the, probably the, the first big step is to understand access to technology and, and whether or not the audience you're trying to reach has good access to broadband, to, you know, that sort of thing, because I still maintain that a telephone can be high tech. So I, I think that, you know, understanding that piece is something that's really important. I think being prepared to support people with computer and technology literacy challenges. Not everyone, even if they have access to broadband, understands really how to use it. So I think you need to be prepared to support people. And what I mean by that is, is that if there's a helpline that they actually speak to a real person in real time versus been, being put in a queue or an automated call, because people get frustrated quickly and then just give up on it. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Our next question is for Joe. Joe, what are two or three services or supports that have been most helpful to you as a caregiver? Well, at the very onset of my husband's diagnosis, I knew that I needed help. So I sought out a counselor for myself, and it was a lifesaver. She is the one who introduced me to care partners. I started out going to the seminars that were held at one of the local churches and attended breakout sessions. And through through her and, you know, of course me, we chose the ones that we thought would be most beneficial to my situation. So I attend all the caregiver seminars and breakout panels that I can. I learned about many resources from her, who I was, what, what help I needed, doctors that I might be needed or wanted to see. And through this counselor is how I learned about seminars and I connected with care partners. Care, we attend caregiver groups. We have five in a month's time with four attended. We haven't gotten on the second one yet. My husband's having some medical problems, but we will. Those have always also been lifesavers for us because it puts us among other people that we can relate to and that we can feed off of. I find myself, you know, looking around the room when we go to a care partner's function and, you know, it helps you realize that you're not alone. You know, there are other people. And two of, two of the facilities have breakout sessions called Common Ground. 
And that puts you in a setting where you're with other caregivers and you're able to talk about different situations that affect each of you differently. And then, you know, for me, that's been wonderful. They, they just act as support groups for us. We have volunteers who help take care of my husband when, you know, and they become volunteers. For instance, I'm, I'm a person who stays at the caregiver's functions because I've learned to love it and I get a lot out of it. But should I need to go out and get a pedicure or shop or go to the doctor, they take care of my husband and I would not hesitate to leave him there without me. I will, my counselor moved away, I will find a new counselor, and should I need her, I know I could call her, but I need always to talk to somebody, I need to have an outlet where, you know, I can get some feedback and know that I'm doing the right thing. My husband, even on his fourth day, once we get to caregivers, to the gatherings, he changes, it's given him an outlet, attitude changes. Honestly, don't know where I would be without care partners and the relationship that we have formed through this organization. Thank you so very much, Joe. Our next question has two parts and is for Dr. Rose and Katie. According to the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's and other dementias disproportionately affect Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, American Indian and Alaska Natives, members of the LGBTQ community, and women. Starting with Katie, what specific challenges do people living with ADRD and their caregivers who belong to diverse or underserved communities face? Also, what recommendations do you have for health plans to implement culturally sensitive strategies for people with dementia and their caregivers? I think one of the biggest challenges that these communities face is that as service providers, we often try to provide cookie-cutter solutions that don't necessarily fit with their cultural or community norms around caregiving, around Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. As service providers, we really need to understand and appreciate that different communities have different views, responses, and reactions to the diagnosis of dementia, as well as the role of caregiving. And so it's really important that service providers engage in cultural competency training. So there are many training programs out there. There are also opportunities to connect with community leaders to understand what are the most pressing needs. Often we will come at a problem and say, well, it's caregiver stress, so why don't you take a caregiver stress reduction class? Well, the stress may be due to lack of access to transportation to get respite. And you only know these things when you ask the questions to the people experiencing them. So I think it's really important that health plans get into the communities that they're serving, ask the questions about what they need, and then think about the solutions that might be best for them and consider the community views and the differences they have in their responses to dementia, as well as a role of caregiving. Really, just boil it down to listen to those people that you're serving. Thank you, Katie. And Dr. Rose, do you mind providing your perspective next? Sure. So I think some of the challenges 
particularly underserved areas, certainly a lack of support services can be incredibly challenging and, and challenges accessing them. If they do exist, how do people access them? Because we know in under-resourced areas, transportation issues um, can prevent people from accessing resources. Do they have adequate mental health resources that they can access? And I think, too, that some of the things that maybe many of us take for granted, you know, like when we often advise caregivers to go out and get more exercise and, and eat more healthy, do they have access to safe places to to exercise? Do they have access to the healthy food options? So I think context is very important in understanding where people are. Recommendations, I just echo what Katie said, listen to people. People know what they need. People know what their questions are and what challenges they, they're having. So again, meeting people where they are and trying to build on their people's strengths, I think is really important. Everyone has, a, has many strengths, so building on those, it's a great approach to build trust and to support people. Wonderful, thank you so much, Dr. Rose. Next question is for Joe. Uh, Joe, from your perspective as a caregiver, what improvements should be prioritized by support programs to better address caregivers' most pressing needs or to fill gaps? Well, once again, go back to your resources and, and oftentimes we don't get the right equipment that we need like for when my husband became challenged in his walking and getting in and out of the car. There, there should be resources or, or recommendations on where you could get equipment. And, you know, for instance, my daughter went out and bought us a wheelchair, a lightweight wheelchair that I could get in and out of the car when we needed to go get our COVID shot. So just, you know, it, it comes back to education and learning all you can about the disease. A next step for me is coming up. I've been advised to start looking for a place to transition my husband. And I will tell you, I'm not ready for that yet, but I have to be, it's time I have to be smart about it and have to look for resources and how they're funded, what, what it would take from us to have him there. And, and that's not possible right now because we're outside of most gaps financially that any help is provided for. So, you know, and, I, and I've said, educate yourself and be ready for what, what you, when that time comes, be ready for what you need. It's kind of like going back and when I educated myself on, on the Medicaid process and, and gathered all of the resources and requirements that they needed. So that's what we're facing right now. And it's, you know, my church is a great, great, great support group for me, but care partners, without care partners, I would be lost, and it's so beneficial to him. So we'll soon have to face the next step. Thank you, Joe. Our next question is for Katie. So regarding care partners, Carmel B. Dyer's second family pilot program in Houston, what specific challenges have you observed that people living with ADRD and their caregivers in this neighborhood face. Also, what successes have you identified? 
We started this project actually having community conversations, and so we went out to community leaders, just as I was advising you all to do. You know, I I put my money where my mouth is, and that's how we started this project. And the things that we really heard were access to services in general, accesses to good, really well-rounded healthcare needs, but then also access to things like technology and transportation that impacts isolation, particularly post-COVID. And then we also heard a lot of associated neglect and elder mistreatment concerns simply because of the lack of support system. And a lot of it was stemming after COVID and the isolation that so many older adults felt and experienced because of their restrictions in movement, simply because they were so vulnerable. So our successes thus far has been our ability to build on the strengths of the neighborhood and their sense of community and connection. You know, though individuals might be isolated, the community, particularly in this neighborhood, comes together and tries to create a wraparound alternative support system for folks when they don't have families. And so we were able to build on this existing community system and build with the communities of faith and students and neighbors to really create an additional support system for these individuals. Wonderful. Thank you, Katie. This next question has two parts and is for Dr. Rose and Katie. Starting with Dr. Rose, what recommendations do you have for health plans in improving outreach and access to community-based ADRV or care navigation services? Are there steps that health plans can take to ensure that outreach is culturally and linguistically appropriate? Great question. So I think most importantly is know your audience. So how, you know, think of ways that you can personalize the message because as as Katie said earlier, a cookie cutter approach and a one size fits all really doesn't work. So I, I think that that's incredibly important. Having said that, for example, in Ohio, knowing we have a large population of Somalians. And so we we need to have on board people who speak their language, we need materials in their language and an awareness of family dynamics and cultural norms so that you're speaking to the appropriate people and you're not turning them off in ways just because you are unfamiliar with their cultural norms. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Katie, could you provide your perspective next? Yes, to piggyback on that, what the next step is to become a trusted resource for the community leaders in the populations that you're trying to serve. So if you are unable to, say, provide the translations that you need for the different populations you're working for, find people in the community that can. And once the community leaders trust you, they know that you are there for the right reasons, they will then make sure that you are also a trusted resource. Another thing to consider is make formal connections to the community organizations in the communities you're trying to reach out to to minimize the burden on family caregivers trying to navigate these systems. For example, Care Partners has been successful recently in creating formal partnerships with healthcare systems. And in these partnerships, the healthcare system simply presses a button, sends an email, for a referral for someone who needs additional assistance. And then we as a community organization follows up. And that takes the burden off the family caregiver. 
then this caregiver is then connected to resources in their communities where they live, and they can get the support they need as soon as they need it. Great. Thank you, Katie. And our final question is for Joe. Joe, what advice do you have for other caregivers who want to find a caregiver support program, connect with peers, or make other meaningful relationships that can be supportive? Well, I would say, first of all, find, find a group like Care Partners and become very involved. I've attended activities. I mean, they have exercises and lunch and entertainment, bingo, and they, they concentrate, for instance, like on my husband. And, it, you know, I, although I'm there with him, his, the concentration comes from them, and it, it just makes him feel important. I have to get myself out of the home and connect with other people or go go back to church. I, I sang in the choir, and I, it, it was so important to me, my faith, but right now I'm locked in. You know, there are days when my husband and I barely talk, and you've got to have some kind of connection, you know, and I don't leave him a lot, but I do need to find somebody. Like, for instance, I recently had hip replacement so I'm recovering from that and taking care of him but you know the day of surgery one of the deacons from the church came and sat with him took him out to lunch those things are important I have people calling all the time what can we do for you my spiritual support groups are really really important friends friends that we've been friends for 50 years and you know so it's important. I don't do it nearly enough. I don't get out of the house. But, of course, I'm recuperating, as I said, right now. But when that's over, you know, I'd like to take him on drives. And we used to, after church, we'd just hop in the car and we'd just drive out in the country and, you know, spend the rest of the day together. And we don't do that anymore because it scares me that I might get him out there and then I can't. Something would happen, and I won't be able to take care. So there's a lot of things that go on with this disease that you just have to accept and and work on changes and try to fit it in. And it's like you're in a new relationship, so honor that relationship. Like I had to learn or relearn how I spoke to him and and never say things to him like, well, don't you remember that? We just talked about that. You can't do that. And no, I'm better, but I've got a ways to go. Thank you so very much, Joe. And a big thank you for the presentations from Dr. Rose and Katie, and also our speakers and Joe for that engaging panel discussion. With that, we now have a few minutes for questions from the audience. If you have questions for our speakers, please submit them using the Q&A box on the lower left of the presentation. Uh, type your comment at the bottom of the Q&A box and press submit to send. So our first question is for Dr. Rose. There are unique caregiver and care community challenges in rural settings where many older adults may live and face ADRD alone. Do you have suggestions for innovative community strategies to support caregivers in rural or non-urban settings? That's a great question. So I, too, my parents live in a rural setting, so I, I understand this challenge. I, I think that it's really, again, 
if there's broadband access, I think that opens a whole world up for people. I know oftentimes in community settings, they're incredibly close-knit relationships through religious groups, potentially through other civic groups. Thinking here in, in, in Virginia, where my parents are, there are Ruitan groups, there are other rotary groups that can provide transportation assistance, air and assistance, that sort of thing. So certainly reaching out to those. And I always recommend, too, certainly area agencies on aging and the kind of support that they can provide and the resources that they have as well. It is challenging, there's no question, but I, there are resources you, you may have to look a little harder. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Our next question is for Katie. Katie, how do you incorporate program volunteer and caregiver feedback to inform your offerings? Yes, yeah, so we have ongoing volunteer and client and caregiver informal feedback every opportunity. I frequently visit some of the sites. We have a staff member at all of our gathering places, so we have those conversations. But then we have an annual survey that we solicit feedback from everyone who is a part of our agency, everyone from the volunteers to the clients and the caregivers, and we ask them about the impact of the program, how it has helped them, and what improvements they can see going forward. We also offer that kind of open forum and dialogue to our partners as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Katie. Dr. Rose, we have a few questions regarding your study. So the first couple questions, what is the scale of the study? How many participants are currently enrolled? Okay. The scale, I, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe the scales that we use, the instruments that we use to identify, maybe some of the mood states, if, if, that's, if I'm understanding that correctly. So we do use the depression, anxiety, and stress scale to measure depression, anxiety, and stress. And then we do use the revised memory and behave, problematic behavior checklist, and that gives us a sense of care of how frequent some of the problematic behaviors are occurring in the person, in the care recipient, and the reactivity, how distressing these behaviors are for the caregivers. So I hope I've answered that, if that's correct. In terms of how many people have we enrolled, it's a small pilot. We were looking to enroll up to 30, and we're a little over halfway there, I'd say, at this point. It's still an ongoing project, as I've described, so we're getting there, but I think that all of us in 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 many facets of life, things slowed down in COVID, and rightfully so. So we're, we're still actively recruiting for this study. Great. And as another question regarding your study. How many hours a day is the tech system working? And I think picking up on the caregiver and care recipient forces. Sure. So the caregivers really tell us they're in charge of that. So they tell us that they don't want it to start, you know, maybe till 8 in the, mor eight in the morning, 10 in the morning, whatever, and they want it to stop at 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, whatever time they tell us. So they're, they're in charge of that. There's also a way that they can turn it off if they want to at any time. For example, if they're having, you know, I, I know over the Thanksgiving holiday, they're having multiple people in this one care recipient, and they just wanted to turn it off. They didn't want to receive any messages. They didn't want anything, and they were able to do that. So we really, that's part of the system, too. We want to give as much control as possible to the caregivers. 
Great. Thank you, Dr. Rose. This next question is for Dr. Rose and Katie. So starting with Katie, what are some ways to engage caregivers early and to support them throughout the progression of ADRD? That's great. And I'm going to particularly speak out to those of you in your care management and as service provider roles. You know, once someone is diagnosed with some type of dementia, encouraging that connection for that caregiver to reach out for help then. I hear on multiple occasions, I wish I had known about you XYZ years ago. And I think the challenge that many caregivers are facing is that they get a diagnosis, they get 10 minutes, and then they just don't know where to look. And so some sort of warm handoff, in the same way that I described connecting health plans with community leaders to create this kind of trust network, it would be the same thing. Find the trusted resource in your community that can help guide a caregiver through the next steps of the process and make sure they're directly connected to that, whether that's a formal referral system like we've established with healthcare entities or it's a more informal system. Just let them know that they're not alone as soon as possible and get them connected to those resources as soon as possible. Thank you, Katie. Dr. Rose, would you like to share your perspective next? I, I ditto everything that Katie said. I think you're right on target with that. I'd also offer too that I think that Alzheimer's disease and being a caregiver can be stigmatizing and so I think that we all need to check ourselves in terms of the words that we use. So, for example, you know, we now know that people live with Alzheimer's disease versus people suffer from Alzheimer's disease. You, you notice the difference there, living with, suffering from. And so I think that the words that we use really do impart some notion of, of what the disease trajectory is. We, we all know people who have been diagnosed early you know, or wherever they are in the spectrum, still can live incredibly meaningful lives, maybe different lives than they had anticipated and had expectations for, but incredibly meaningful lives. And so I think that that too matters, the, the words that we use and the way in which we address caregivers and people living with Alzheimer's disease really matters. Thank you both. Another question for both of you, Dr. Rose and Katie, what is the best place to start with providing caregiver resources, what do you recommend we address first? And let's start with Dr. Rose this time. Sure, that's a great question. I think you start first with what people tell you they need. And so I will tell you that, you know, there have been times that I've thought in my head, ah, we'll start here. And actually when you talk to people, you realize, ah, that's wrong. Before we can solve, you know, problem, C, we need to address problem A first. So it, it, I think it's incredibly meaningful to understand some of their questions, you know, what they need right now is maybe assistance with, with transportation, that sort of thing, versus something else that we might think is important in their lives. They might need right now access to free and reduced medications. Maybe that's not something we readily address. That would be important. So again, I, I just come back to this notion of ask people what they want and what they need because they're the ones who know best. Thank you, Dr. Rose and Katie. I, I second everything that Dr. Rose just said. I had a caregiver tell me once in a focus group said, we need the right information at the right time. 
And she was describing situations where at early diagnosis of her husband's Alzheimer's disease, people were giving her information on nursing homes. And she said that simply wasn't helpful. So as Dr. Rose said, ask the questions and then you'll know where to go from there. But outside of that, I think the first thing they need to know is who, again, going back to who are the trusted sources of information, both online and locally. And so if you can work out in your community, where are the resources that you want to send people to to get the most accurate information on diagnosis, on stages, and on next steps? I think that's also a good generic answer, but I'd prefer to go with Dr. Rose and ask the question because they know what they need first. Great. Thank you. This next question is for Dr. Rose. Could there be an opportunity, depending on the real-time feedback you get from your study, that support resources can be linked to the caregiver and patient? In other words, for instance, if a particular family is experiencing high stress for a long period of time, as per the information collected, could this somehow trigger the opportunity to send out counseling or social services support to that family? Love that, and, and we've considered that. That's great. Right now, that's beyond really our capability, but I, I think that's a great next step. The challenge for us, too, then will be to be sure, because you, you all know, resources change. Phone numbers change. Contact people, you know, numbers change. And so right now, because we're doing this really across the U.S., we've been unable to do that. But, and I think that that's an incredible next step for, for this system to undertake. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Loon Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website, resourcesforintegratedcare.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at integrate underscore care or follow Resources for Integrated Care on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our recent products and technical assistance.